Our Father, we do indeed behold you, our God and Christ in the Spirit. On the pages of Scripture, for it is there that you have revealed yourself to us. You've revealed yourself to us in creation. You have revealed yourself to us ultimately in Christ. But you have revealed yourself to us in your word. Here, though we did not and have not seen Christ physically, we see the glory of Christ exactly as you want us to see him on the pages of Scripture. You have revealed yourself to us exactly as you want us to respond to you and all of your majesty and authority and hope in you and all of your wonderful promises and delight in you and all of your perfections and wonders. And we do that as we know you through your word, as our eyes are opened, our ears are opened and our hearts energized and made alive by your spirit. And I do pray that this morning in the few moments we have together as we hear you speak to us and prepare our hearts for the Lord's table that you would that you would so hold up your glory that our hearts would respond in adoring praise and worship that we would delight in the wonder of your grace that's revealed in the book of Isaiah and the passage that will occupy our time in the coming days be with us we pray in Jesus name amen well open your bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 9 Isaiah chapter 9, actually we'll begin at the end of chapter 8, verses 21, verse 21, and be looking at this morning at Isaiah chapter 8, verse 21, and we'll end at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5. Now we are anticipating our move back into the gospel of Matthew, particular chapters, particularly chapters 24 and 25. But before we get there, we're going to take a couple of weeks to consider a key Old Testament passage that anticipates the coming Messiah. Indeed, a passage that many of us are already familiar with because of Handel's Messiah and the many Christmas cards on which the promise of Isaiah 9-6 is written, Behold to us a child is born, a son is given. It is indeed a magnificent and a key passage in all of Scripture anticipating not only who Christ is, but what Christ would do and be for His people. And as we have been looking at Matthew chapter 24, that is in fact an anticipation of Christ coming as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Davidic king, as it were, to establish his kingdom on earth, to eradicate and destroy his enemies. It is a time that's coming. It is a time that we as his people anticipate with great hope. Now, the overwhelming theme of our passage, and indeed, really, the overwhelming theme of all of Scripture as it relates primarily to God's work of redemption in his Son, it's a theme of sovereign grace. A theme that could be written over all of Scripture, in fact, could be salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. And that is, in fact, what we see here this morning. Now, many of you probably understand, or if you were asked to define the term grace, would say something along these lines. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's God's goodness to us who don't deserve God's goodness. And that's good as far as it goes. However, I would suggest probably a better definition of grace or idea of grace is this. It is God's goodness to those who deserve wrath. 
You see, we don't just don't deserve anything, or we don't just not deserve anything, but we do deserve something. We deserve judgment. We have sinned against God, and yet in grace, God overflows and showers the abundance of His goodness to us in Christ. Now, we've been looking at this theme in Ephesians chapter 1, as Pastor Rudin is taking us through to see God's sovereign plan of calling to Himself a people in His Son, in Christ, and through Him giving us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This morning, we're going to see that grace in the book of Isaiah. Now, the main point of the passage is this. God's promise of a child who will come to bring grace and glory and to rule on David's throne forever. That's, in one sense, the big idea. It's a child whom he's going to bring. It's going to be a a promised one, the Messiah, the Christ, through whom all of God's blessings will come to his people, to his people. So we're going to look at this through three portraits of God's mercy and grace in the coming Messiah. This morning, we're going to consider the first two, namely the context in which this grace is going to be given, and secondly, the contrast in which this grace will come. In other words, this grace presides a contrast to the undeservedness of man's man because of their sin. Let's begin with the context. The context. And in the context is a promise of salvation to a people under judgment. It's a promise of salvation to a people who are under judgment. Now, to begin, the wide context, which would really encompass all of the book of Isaiah, is that of the prophet Isaiah chosen by God to address a people who will soon, in their historical context, experience the judgment of God. He's writing in the 8th century B.C. And he's writing to tell these wicked nation that there is a price to pay for their rebellion against God. But he's also writing to remind them and to assure them that the end is not judgment, but there is ultimately God's purpose of salvation, which He will accomplish. In less than 30 years of Isaiah's writing, and the nation of Assyria will be raised up by God, whom is defined in chapter 10 as the rod of His discipline. The rod of His discipline. And Assyria will be used to punish, in a, in a final sense, the northern tribes of Israel... And he will be used then to bring a discipline, as we'll look at later, to the southern tribes. But ultimately, he's going to, Assyria is going to come through and in 722 B.C. wipe out uh, the northern tribes of Israel, take over their capital, Samaria, carry many of them off in exile to a foreign land. And that will be the end of the northern tribes of Israel. In over a hundred years from the writing of this prophecy, he will bring his judgment against the southern tribe of Judah by the hand of Babylon, whom he'll also raise up for that purpose to execute his discipline on a disobedient people. And they will be in exile for a period of 70 years, the southern tribe of Judah. But as I said, amid these threats, these certainties of a coming judgment, God gives some of the most glorious promises of salvation and some of the most specific and wonderful promises of this coming Messiah. And in fact, Isaiah, 
which is a book of contrast, that contrast of judgment and salvation primarily, darkness of the people and the light of God and the light that He will bring, could really be broken up into two halves. This is a generalization, but the first half, chapters 1 through 39, really emphasize the judgment. He's addressing the people here who are soon to experience this captivity, who are soon going to experience God's discipline by going into exile. So he's addressing that people. And then in chapters 40 through 66, by and large, he's addressing the people who are going to be delivered out of that captivity, who are going to come back into the land, experience the goodness of God. And to those people, he also reminds and emphasizes his salvation and what's going to come ultimately in the future, which is God's kingdom being established for the good of his people and his own glory. Now, the near context here for us, which is going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, really begins in chapter 7. Really begins in chapter 7. And again, a a passage that we're rather familiar with. In verse 1 of chapter 7, God is bringing a message to Ahaz. Ahaz is the grandson of Uzziah. He is a wicked king. Uzziah was a good king. Now his grandson... Ahaz is one who is spiritually corrupt and corrupts the people of God. And so Isaiah is coming to King Ahaz to deliver to him a message. And when he brings this message, he's going to hold before this Judean king a promise of hope and deliverance as well as a threat, a warning of judgment. He holds before him the promise of blessing if he will but turn and trust in him, the covenant and faithful God. Now the immediate situation mentioned here in verse 1 of chapter 7 is is the threat of Rezin, the king of Aram, and Pekah, the king of Israel. And they are going against Jerusalem, the land of Judah, where Ahaz resides. Now, while in a state of fear of this threat from Pekah and Rezin, God sends Isaiah to comfort Ahaz, assuring him that the plans of these two kings will not stand. Matter of fact, in verse 4, he says, Take care, care, this is from Isaiah to Ahaz, and be calm, have no fear, and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram, the son of Mamalia. In other words, do not fear them, Ahaz, because God is going to act in faithfulness. He will not let you be overtaken by them. Yet Ahaz is presented with a choice. He's either to trust in God or he's to trust in man. He'll either trust in God or he'll trust in man. He says in the end of verse 9, If you will not believe, you surely shall not last. In other words, if you will not believe that salvation and protection is going to come from the hand of God and not from the hand of men, then you will be disciplined. But know that God is offering to you to deliver you by his own sovereign hand. So this is the choice that is set before Ahaz. And the mercy of God is abundant. Knowing Ahaz's wayward heart, his unbelieving heart, his unsubmitted heart, God even gives to him the opportunity to compensate for his weak faith. And he says in verse 11, Ask for a sign for yourself from the Lord. Make it as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. 
In other words, if you want confirmation of my word, ask of me what it would take to confirm it into your heart. And Ahaz, I will do that. Despite God's offer, Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign. He says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Which is indeed a statement of unbelief for which God rebukes him, couched in terms of piety and a false sense of righteousness. Indeed, he will not ask a sign from God that is presented to him because he had already determined in his heart in whom he would place his trust, namely the nation of Assyria to deliver him from the threat of Rezin and Pekah. So this isn't a a statement of piety, of not wanting to offend the Lord. It is a statement of unbelief in the Lord. It is a statement of rejection of God. Rejection of God's purposes. Rejection of God's promise. And so God says to him, If you will not ask of me a sign to affirm my work, to affirm the work of my hand, then I will give you a sign myself. Verse 14. He says, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, the near, the near anticipation of the ultimate fulfillment of this promise, which would come much, much later, is a child that would be given to Isaiah. He says in verse 15, he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, that the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. And indeed, this is what happened. Assyria did come and by the hand of God, eliminate the threat of these two kings and ravish the land of the northern tribes of Israel, the northern part of the land given to Israel. He did come and defeat Pekah and Rezin, the king of Aram. But because Ahaz trusted in Assyria, God eventually used that same nation to bring hardship to Judah as well. As a matter of fact, he says in verse 6 of chapter 8, "...inasmuch as these people have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoice in Rezin and the son of Remaliah." Assyria is going to come and just overtake the land. The king of Assyria and all his glory will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks and sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through it. So discipline was going to come by the hand of the Lord anyway because of the wickedness and the unbelief of Ahaz. But the child that was going to be the sign for this in one sense, that was going to anticipate this work, the child of Isaiah, the children of Isaiah, that were still going to be young when God was going to accomplish all of these things that he says here, were not the ultimate fulfillment. They were anticipation indeed. He says in verse 18 of chapter 8, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. But there was not the ultimate fulfillment. They were not the child that God was truly looking forward to. The child that Isaiah will lay before us in verses 6 through 7, which we'll look at next week. But the main point here is to recognize that Ahaz is a wicked king. And he's ruling over a wicked people who chose idolatry and trust in man over the grace and the mercy of God. Despite God's threatenings and calls to grace, the people chose darkness over light. Their sin 
over righteousness. And therefore, their immediate future holds for them only the fear and certainty of judgment. And that we will look at more closely in verses 21 through 22. And the main theme then is this. That judgment comes as a result of man's sin, but salvation because of God's sovereign grace. So that's the contrast. The blackness of man's sin, the rebellion of man's sin, the rebellion of unbelief in God and His promises, and yet the certain promise that that rebellion is not the last word, judgment is not the end of the story, but ultimately God's expression of grace and His favor to His people. So let's look at, secondly then, the contrast This contrast, God's sovereign grace against the backdrop of man's sin. So let's notice first the backdrop of man's sin in verses 21 through 22. He says here, they will pass through the land, here the people who are left in the land, hard pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. Notice first here then the hardship and hatred of of these people, the hostility that they have toward their king and God in response to God's judgment. It's a sad state. Again, in spite of God's kindness and mercy and His promises, To them, his offerings of blessing, they rejected his offerings. They scorned his requirements. This is a picture of the depravity of men. He began his very revelation, Isaiah, to this nation. He he acknowledges the, the depth of their rejection of the goodness of God. He says, you are like those of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, I have no pleasure in your false religious worship. But in the midst of that, he gives them the opportunity to turn. He says in verse 16 of chapter 1, Wash yourselves, make yourself clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be made like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So that's what lays before them. That's what lays before all men. That's what lays before you and me. To turn to the Lord and to trust in His goodness, to receive His grace, to receive His mercy, to bow before His sovereign hand or to reject. And sadly, the picture here then is of rejection. Of rejection. Notice their hardship in verse 21. He said that they will pass through the land hardship with hardship... Uh, They were passing the land hard-pressed and famished. Now the land here could be either the land of Judah, where some were left, or it could be the land of exile where they were taken. I think the best here is to understand the land of Judah, the land where they were left, the land of God's promise. The land that should be yielding to them abundance is yielding to them only want, only emptiness. As a matter of fact, back in chapter 7, he said, 
in verse 23, and it will come about in that day that every place where there used to be a thousand vines valued at a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. People will come there with bows and arrows because all the land will be briars and thorns. As for the hills which used to be cultivated with the hoe, you will not go there for fear of briars and thorns. They will become a place for pasturing oxen and for sheep to trample. That's the land, the land of abundance, the land promised to God's people, the land flowing with milk and honey, the land that should give to them every and meet all of their wants and desires will become to them a land of desolation. A land that should prove comfort will be for their suffering. It will become a place of want. And this want will be a means of their turning to their king and to their God in hatred and contempt. Look at the end of verse 21. And they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. So their hardship will produce in them hostility, hatred, anger. The king here is King Ahaz, of course, who introduced to the nation of Judah, to the tribes of Judah, the false gods of the nation of Assyria. He was enamored with them. And so he introduced them and it brought even greater corruption to the people of God who replaced the altar of God with an altar of idolatry. The term God here could refer to their idols whom now they find impotent and angry, but most likely refers to the true God, the God of their covenant, although it is a perverted view of this God, their God, that they have. And the idea is, now that they have turned from God and they sought after other other gods and the gods of the nations, they're suffering judgment for their rebellion. Look what they do. They look upward. So what do they do? They curse. They're enraged. They face upward. As they do this upward as it is looking into the heavens where God is to curse him as it were to his face. To express their anger and their rejection. Their contempt. God who should in their minds be giving them abundance. Providing for their needs is not doing so. And so they're angry. This is a strong picture of our depravity. We are not so different, and man certainly, left to themselves and by nature, is not so different. One has said this, Rather than discerning in it, in other words, their punishment and their hardships, the just punishment of their own apostasy, and humbling themselves penitently under the almighty hand of God, they respond in rage. In other words, God said that if you sin, this is going to be the consequence. And so when the consequence comes, which should be a humbling to our proud hearts, sin responds in rage, in blame, accusing God for lacking somehow goodness, for lacking somehow to be a good God and to be a faithful God. They blame God for their hardships rather than to be ashamed and are broken over the consequences of their own iniquity. They turn their back on God, and yet they still feel entitled to His blessings. They turn their back on God, but they still feel entitled to His blessings. They still feel entitled to His help rather than to His judgment. And that is the issue. It is a failure for them to acknowledge their own responsibility to God... And see only 
A God is, that should bend to their will, that should bend to their desires, that should ignore their sin. And this indeed is nothing new. We've read this already. But this is the heart of man all the way up to the end left to themselves. Listen to Revelation 16. Speaking here of the plagues of God coming upon the earth because of man's rebellion, great suffering, great misery. And it says here in Revelation that men were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give Him glory. In verse 11, And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. In verse 21, And huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven and because of the plague of the hell and because its plague was extremely severe but they would not Repent toward God. This is the heart of sin. The heart of sin. And we see it in our own nation when tragedy happens, don't we? Rather than turning to God in humble confession of our sin, reflecting on our own iniquity, reflecting as a nation on our own guilt and our shame before God for having so offended Him and rejected Him and casting His law behind us, we look at Him with blame. How could God let this happen? Where was God when this happened? How could God be good and let such tragedy fall on this nation? For we indeed are deserving only of His blessing. This is the same attitude that they're expressing here. Even recently, after 14 people were killed and 17 were seriously injured in the shooting at San Bernardino, there was an article, a front page actually, many of you knew it, in the New York Daily News that says, uh, essentially, God is not fixing this. And it was a response of this author to all of the politicians who he said were offering mere platitudes of prayer when in fact 14 people lay dead and 17 injured. Now to be fair, the author said later that it was not meant to be against prayer but only calling for a more substantial solution to the issue of guns. However the author author meant it though, it exposed the feelings of many who took it at face value and responded with support and said yes, Why pray? What kind of God could there be that could allow such tragedy to happen? To turn our back on Him. It's the response of an unbelieving and a dark heart. It's the obstinacy of our fallen hearts. Now the form of rebellion is not always as crass here as it was in that article. It can be more subtle, more gentle, even moral. But the effect is the same. It is the heart that refuses to humble itself before God. A simple refusal to humble ourselves and acknowledge the reality of our own sinfulness and guilt. To try to hide our sin. To try to hide it and cover it up so that it cannot be exposed. But the message is here that he will not help until there is repentance and brokenness. Isaiah will later say to these people, speaking as of God, To this one will I look, to him who is broken and contrite of heart. Who's broken and contrite of heart. So there's a picture here of those who refuse to be broken, of those who refuse to be contrite. 
And I would even ask you, what is your first response in times of trial? Is it to blame or question God or to search your own heart to see where there might be sin? Where there might be something that God is exposing? Is it to see how you might trust Him and grow and be obedient to Him in the midst of a difficulty or to blame Him? Theirs was to turn to God in rage. And that's how it is with the natural man. And it leads to hopelessness and gloom. Look at verse 22. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness and gloom and anguish. And they will be driven away into darkness. And this is the downward spiral into the darkness of sin. Having looked to their king and their God and finding no help and cursing them, they now look to the earth. Which simply means this, that they look for earthy relief in some way by their own resources that they can bring themselves out of this condition. They can protect themselves and secure themselves somehow from the discipline of God. He'll address that same attitude in chapter 9 after their destruction in the northern tribes on Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria. He says, Asserting in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with smooth stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. In other words, go ahead and destroy God. We will, by our own strength, rebuild. We will be restored. But God says that is not the case. They will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. They will be driven away into darkness. They have rejected God's law. They had turned to false forms of spirituality. In verse 19 of chapter 8, necromancy and consulting with the dead and soothsayers and fortune tellers. And so God has hidden His face from them. In verse 17, He has hid His face from the house of Jacob. One has said divine justice has given them what they loved. Darkness all around and a dark future ahead. The nemesis of abandoning their God and refusing His testimony and law. And this, beloved, is a picture of the darkness of sin. The blackness of sin. Always portrayed in these pictures of darkness, blindness, a failure to see, of being lost. It's described this way in Isaiah 60. Behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. In the book of Ephesians, it's the same. We're not there yet, but listen to Ephesians chapter 4. Speaking of the Gentiles who walk in the futility of their mind, it's being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, the hardness of their heart. They've become callous and given themselves over to every form of sin. And that leads to gloom. And that is the picture. And that is the backdrop then of our sin. And of the the backdrop in which God's grace comes. And His goodness comes. They are in gloom and anguish by their own choosing. But God will not leave them that way. He gives the contrast then in verses 9, chapter 9, 1 through 5. Man left to himself, rebellious, in darkness bringing gloom and misery upon ourselves. But man, in light of God's grace, in light of God's sovereign grace and goodness to His creation, can have the hope of salvation. Look at verse, verses 1-5. through five, And see the light and the joy of God's sovereign grace. There's the blackness of man's sin and the light of joy of God's sovereign grace. So hopeless on our own, unable to remedy the darkness and manufacture light, God will take initiative. 
their condition and our condition would be helpless. Hopeless. Have you ever grappled with that fact? Have you ever considered the condition of your own soul by nature apart from the goodness of God? The hopelessness of it. The helplessness of you to do anything to save yourself. Because until we realize that, the measure of God's grace and the expression of God's grace is going to fail to have the depth of meaning that it should, fail to produce the gratitude and thankfulness of our hearts that it should. Left to ourselves, darkness, gloom, and distress would be all we could ever expect for eternity, not only in this world, but those wonderful words that have been pointed out so many times, but God, but God, He has not left us to ourselves. He will bring salvation. That's the message. He will establish the hope of His people by His own strong arm. It will be by His doing. It will be by His grace. It will be for His glory. It will be for the good of His people. Indeed, only God can declare the end from the beginning. Things that have not yet come to pass, which Isaiah will remind them of later. Now, interestingly, all of these promises are in the past tense. And depending on which version, it will be written in the future tense. God will do this. Or it will be in the past tense. God has done this. And the reason is this. They are actually written in the past tense. But they're, they're, they're better spoken of as the future. Because these are promises that are yet to come. But he speaks of them in the past tense because of the certainty of their accomplishment. In other words, this isn't what might happen. This is what will certainly happen. This is what God will do. It speaks of God's sovereignty. In fact, it's the same idea in Romans chapter 8. Don't turn there, but he says this. Speaking of the elect, speaking of the children of God, he says this. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed in the image of his Son, that he would be the firstborn of many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he called. These whom he called, he justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. It hasn't happened yet, but it will. It's not yet, we don't yet experience the realities of glorification, but we will. It's certain It's unshakable. It's a promise that God will bring about by His own sovereign hand. In fact, every promise of God is a declaration of His absolute sovereignty. Every promise that He makes is a testimony of His sovereignty because it is something that He assures He will bring about. Nothing can stop it. And so it is here to His people, Israel. And so it is to us. And it's important to grasp this. Think of how these people would have felt in the miseries of the judgment and the discipline of God. Uncertain as to their future. Uncertain as to whether God would again turn His face to them. But they were to look at these promises and find strength. They were to look at these promises and find hope. One has said this, As always, the people of God must decide what reading of their experiences they will live by. So they, in the time of Isaiah, we in the time here this morning, when we experience hardship, when we experience distress, we have a choice of how we will view these situations. Will we respond by trust in the promise of God or will we respond in despair? Will we lay hold of the certain promises of God that remind us of His ultimate purpose in the trial 
to conform us to Christ, His ultimate promise in the trial, it's only temporary. It's only for a little while. Your future is secure, so hold on and be faithful. That's the choice that's laid before them here. But what a glorious promise He gives them. Note first in verse 1, He will bring, in contrast to their, to their contempt that they were held in, He will bring them to a place of His favor. But there will be, he says, no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea and on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. What an incredible promise. The people who lied in contempt shall be made glorious. What an incredible contrast from gloom to glory, from gloom to glory. And imagine the joy this would bring to the hearts of those who were weighed down with a sense of hopelessness, a sense of abandonment, to hear these words of God to give promise, to give hope, to give a word of certainty of His future promises for them. The land He's referring to here refers to the northern part of the borders of Israel, the northern part of the borders of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. Because of its location, this place throughout the history of Israel was often occupied by foreign leaders, by foreign governments. And even when it wasn't, there was a strong influence of foreign nations and foreign gods. There was spiritual corruption often in these lands throughout their history. It was the first place, in fact, these lands to be where Assyria would launch its assault, sweeping down from the north into the south through these lands of Zebulun and Naphtali. 2 Kings 15.29 speaks of the Assyria sweeping down in and to these very cities and taking away the people into exile, as Isaiah anticipated. It was the place where God began His judgment for their pride and arrogance. But here God says, it's not going to be the place where I initiate judgment, but where your salvation will be initiated. It's a place that will be marked with blessing. A blessing. And look at what the end of verse 1. He specifically shows that, or mentions that it is the Galilee of the Gentiles, of the nations. He's here showing that His promise was centered on the Jews... And coming through them is not only for them. God's saving purposes include the world. It always included the world. We read it this morning in Genesis chapter 1. God created the heavens and the earth and all who are on it and everything on it. He is the God of the Jews and the God of the Gentiles. His salvation was always intended to be to the ends of the earth. He says in Isaiah 45:22, "Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other." And I would make a suggestion here, in light of the fact that the Jews, just as we saw in the attitude of Jonah, really despised the fact that God's salvation was to the ends of the earth. They really despised the fact that God was going to save the enemies of his, their covenant people. And we can look at that and, and and blame them, and we should, that's wrong, and God rebuked Jonah for that very attitude. But I would suggest that sometimes as Christians we can be guilty of the same thing. And I speak to my heart as well here. When we're reminded that our hearts, rather than seeing even those who are a threat to us as a nation, even as we see those who, in the religion of 
Islam would destroy and hurt and terrorize. And while there is a right time and there is the rightness to stop that evil, to pick up the sword, as it were, to stop the onslaught of evil, we would ask ourselves, or should, as believers, is our response first and overwhelmingly to kill, or is it to pray for these who are our enemies? Would we rather see them dead, or would we rather see them saved? One has written in an article this week, he said this, As Christians, we need to renounce the spirit of Jonah who wanted the destructions of God's merciless enemies and hated the thought of those enemies receiving mercy from God. But God does not delight in the death of the wicked and desires that all people come to repentance. If that is God's heart, should it not be ours? Should we desire the destruction of the wicked, death to all of God's enemies? End quote. That's good. Here, these Jews who had such a myopic view of God's saving purposes centered on themselves. But God says, yes, salvation is going to come. It's going to come in the most unlikely places. And here, hinting that, again, what he makes clear throughout, it will include even the Gentiles. And the point here is this, that his grace appears in the most unlikely places. How differently God works than we would. We would put palaces, places of religious significance, but he does just the opposite. This place that was held in contempt, a place even where Gentiles are increased in population, will be a place where God begins to expose his coming grace. Secondly, in contrast, not only where there was contempt, he will bring favor. Where there is darkness, he will bring light. Look at verse 2. The peoples who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Light will come because God will bring it. Truth will come where there is lies and errors. The testimony of his righteousness will come where there is only wickedness. The people who walk, who live, who daily conduct themselves and their lives according to the principles of darkness will instead see a great light. One has said, in the place of darkness, in the place of the darkness of calamity, the people saw the light of peace and blessedness. In the place of darkness and death, the light of life. In place of the darkness of ignorance, the light of knowledge. In place of the darkness of sin, the light of salvation. We sang about it, actually. Didn't we in a hymn over Christmas that we only sing at Christmas? Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and a glorious morn. And then calling us to worship the Savior who would come. And so it is here, the the nation and the world, as it were, lies in darkness, in sin, and in error, in shame, and iniquity, bringing on themselves only judgment. But God says, no, that will be the beginning of my grace, the land that is the farthest from me. And where the darkness is the darkest, I will bring light that is the brightest. At the time of Isaiah, the people's darkness took the form of idolatry. At the time of Christ, it was the darkness of self-righteousness, empty and vain religion that honored him with their lips but did not affect the heart. But God promises here, whatever the darkness, he will shine his light. He will bring salvation. He will 
not leave men ultimately to their own devices, but He will bring grace and glory and goodness. Ultimately, of course, this is looking forward to the coming of Christ. This is a future time. He anticipated it in the book of Isaiah in several places, speaking of the light that would come and that would be a light to the Gentiles. But most powerfully, he says it in John. You know this verse. Speaking of Christ, in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend or better overtake it. It did not extinguish the light. In fact, the light would eventually extinguish the darkness. God would win. God would win. Even though the darkness would seem to have won the day, crucifying the Lord of glory, putting Him to death, putting Him to open shame, it was even in that very act of darkness and of wickedness that the light of God in some sense shined even the brightest. It was there that His promises were fulfilled for the salvation of His people, atoning for their sins on the cross. Indeed, it was that very hour of darkness that Christ said in responding to the Father that His glory was most revealed. Father, glorify Your name. I have glorified it and I will glorify it. How? By going to the cross. By going to the cross. But here there is this promise then of this one who would come Light would come. Light would shine. Now the provision of this light, however, it should be noted, does not guarantee that men will respond to it rightly. Right? We just noted that. They, they killed Him. They crucified the Lord of glory in 1 Corinthians 2.8. Their darkness sought to extinguish the light. But the light of God's grace is shining nonetheless. And it is God's truth and God's salvation that will for His people have the last word. Though men's heart lie in darkness, He will for some shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And when He does, there will be joy. Look at verse 3. He will bring favor in place of contempt. He will bring light in place of darkness. And in verse 3, He will bring gladness and joy where there was only gloom. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. And they will be glad in your presence. And with with the gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. What a glorious, glorious promise here. The joy here is directly attached at one level to the blessings of the abundance that God will bring. Those who were formerly forsaken diminished, exiled, taken away out of the land to those he will multiply the nation. There will be yet a fulfillment still to come of the promise given to Abraham. There will be multiplied as a nation. You shall increase their gladness. You shall increase their gladness. And he says, look at the end. That gladness will be the gladness as of harvest. In other words, it's when there's an abundance of the goodness and the blessing of God. When our quivers are full. When there's no want. When there's no lack. When we live in comfort and ease and blessing because of the blessing of God. It's that kind of joy. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil. In other words, when there's the joy of victory. The joy of not being the victim, but the victor who divides the spoil and is not spoil for the enemy, but instead has an abundance. 
It's that kind of joy. It's that kind of gladness. It's a gladness of an abundance of God's blessing, of God's favor. He says in chapter 12, You will say on that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for although you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And in that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Make them remember that his name is exalted. Praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. God's favor will again turn and that favor will bring joy. It will bring gladness. But notice there at the middle of the verse... It's not simply for the blessings. It really takes no spirituality of any consequence to be thankful to God for blessings, right? Who wouldn't be thankful for blessings when we're showered with gifts? Who wouldn't be thankful for being the victor, for receiving the abundance of God's hand in his creation? But that is not the true source of joy. It was from the springs of salvation we just read. And look what he says in the middle of verse 3. They will be glad in your presence. It is because God will be in the midst of his people. Great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Here, it is the presence of God that they really anticipate. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And God gives himself to be enjoyed here. But God gives himself to be enjoyed. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. Whom have I in heaven but thee, and besides thee I desire nothing on earth. That's the cry of God's people. God is the desire of the hearts of his people. God is their joy. God is their pleasure. He is the one that they desire to be with. These, in fact, are the true affections of a regenerate heart. It's not the blessings of God, but the presence of God that is the joy of the believer. And that's why it can be when we have the presence of God, strength and joy, even in the midst of adversity, even in the midst of hardship. It is the presence of God. That was God's promise to Moses. He says, I will go with you. And Moses says, look, this is an obstinate, hard-headed people. If you don't go with me, then I can't go. But if you go with me, if your presence is with me, if I can have a sight of your glory, then I can endure whatever hardship you bring. Joshua, you're going to go into the land, but do not fear. Take courage, for I am with you. Paul said, they all abandoned me. Nobody stood at my defense. And yet he was not alone because the Lord stood with him. It is the presence of God that is the joy of his people. It is a joy that is available to his people in abundance, which is the ultimate hope. But it's a joy that's available even in difficulty, even in trial. For it's God himself that we desire. Note lastly, and we must go quickly. Number four, he's going to bring them deliverance where there was oppression. He's going to bring favor where there was contempt, light where there was darkness, joy where there was gloom, and here deliverance where there was oppression in verses four through five. 
You will break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Now he's expanding on the previous promise of joy and gladness that comes from God bringing victory. Look at what he says in verse 4. He has a series here of explanations of what is the the real source of this joy and gladness. He says 4 in verse uh, 4, 4 in verse 5, and then what we'll look at next week, 4, a child is born. Here it is this joy that will come because he will remove from them all oppression, deliverance from their enemies. The imagery here really conjures up the reminder of their oppression that they experienced in the land of Egypt. There where they were oppressed and God brought about a great deliverance. And he compares it with the battle of Midian. If you'll remember Midian under Gideon, under his leadership, God reduced him to only a few, 300 men. Few in terms of the size of the army they were going against. And he delivered his people. Why did he do that? He did that so that he could declare to them, it is God who is your deliverer, not a man, not Gideon. It is ultimately the faithfulness of the covenant God of Israel. And here he's, he's pulling up that imagery, the God who is your redeemer, who took you out of the slavery of Egypt. Your God who has carried you as his people. The God who delivers you not by many, but by few. The God who alone is your deliverer. He will bring this about. It won't come about by your strength. It won't come about by your might. It will come about by the good purposes of God. And that's the encouragement. He'll bring it about by his own hand. Don't look to your own strength for peace and deliverance. But know that God will bring it about. It won't come by human accomplishment or human strength. But the sovereign purposes of God. There is a a sense in which a foretaste of this came when they experienced the deliverance from the oppression of Assyria and the foreign nations that had persecuted them because of God's discipline on them. And yet, the deliverance there did not bring lasting peace, nor was it attended with the, the joyful return and of abundance anticipated here. That's not what he's referring to. He's looking for yet a far distant time. A distant time where they will be finally free from captivity and oppression from their enemies. A time where they will be finally free to enjoy the abundance of God's goodness and God's blessing. It's a time when all her war will cease. In verse 5 where he says the, the boot of the booted warrior and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning for fuel for the fire. What he means is that all of those All of those things that are a result of war and their weapons are implied here. Everything related to war will be done away with. It will be done away with. There will be no more need for it. He anticipates this in chapter 2. He says, He will judge between the nations. He'll render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. And nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, walk in the light of the Lord. That's the promise. There's a time when war will cease. The Pope can pray for war. Nations can work for war towards peace, excuse me. And the Pope can pray for peace. And nations can work towards it. And we as God's people should seek peace. And we should promote peace. And we should be all for peace. And we should do everything that we can to bring about peace. But the 
reality is it will not come, we know, in this world. We can be thankful when we get small glimpses and taste, but it will not come until God brings it about by His own hand. The nation of Israel has known war. The nations have known war. But the promise is that there is a time when that war will cease. It will be done away with. The remembrance of all of the destruction will be gone. It will be done away with. He will bring a final end to her oppression. Destruction of the enemies at once and once for all. By God's power, He makes wars to cease and He alone. And the yoke of their slavery, the yoke of their oppressors, will be replaced with the yoke of their Savior. Of course, the great anticipation of this is when Christ would come and He'd say, Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. It is an easy yoke that the Lord brings and one that He bears with us. Well, there was more to say, but we're going to pick this up next week in verse 6. And we're asking the question, how will God accomplish this? And Isaiah answers it because of a child of promise, the Messiah who is going to come. How will God accomplishment accomplish this? Because He will send a Savior. The very Savior that we remember this morning in the table, in the bread and the elements. Ultimately, He will accomplish this by His bearing of the sin of His people. Yes, He will bring destruction. Yes, there are threatenings. But ultimately, the picture that He gives us here is of a child. One who will come in weakness, in smallness. He is the one on whom the government will rest. He will bring about the purposes of God. And He's the one that we remember. And the very kingdom that He's anticipating here, and the very time that He's revealing here, is the time that we're anticipating to come at the return of Christ that we remember this morning in the table. Pray with me and prepare your heart as the men pass out the elements. Father, we thank you for the glorious promise that you give us. Help us to lay hold of the truth and the light of your word. Even as here Israel was to lay hold of the promise of your future deliverance, the salvation that you would bring by your own hand, though they were in a state of gloom and despair, help us to Hold on in the same way and look forward to that glory with which the sufferings of this world cannot even be compared because of its greatness. Help us to long and desire your presence and to find joy in you and in you alone. To foster our fellowship with you and delight and faithfulness and joy and obedience and submission. Help us to indeed reveal that our trust is not in man but in you, our God, and in your salvation, and in your promise. Prepare our hearts now as we get ready to take the elements of your table. If there's any sin that needs to be confessed and dealt with, would you move upon the heart that needs to deal with that now before you? If there's any relationship that is broken that needs to be repaired, will you convict the one that needs to go forward even now? If there is a heart that... It takes these elements but cannot identify with the kind of joy in your presence, the kind of humble repentance for sin and trust in Christ that's portrayed here. Help them to examine themselves, expose to them whatever may be false, and lead them into the way of truth, to Christ, to the way and the truth and the life, and encourage our hearts 
by the greatness of what you have done for us in your Son. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.